Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fighters podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. And I'm Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor here at ETF.com. This week, we're talking with Elizabeth Kashner, Director of Exchange Traded Fund Research and Analytics at FactSet. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks, Sumit. So nice to be here. How you doing, Elizabeth? Thank you very much for being here and helping us out. Uh, I want to start kind of high level here. Tell us, uh, tell us about FactSet. What is it? What are you guys doing over there? And how's it all working out? Oh, Jeff, thank you so much for asking. So FactSet is a financial data provider uh, with a very strong tech infrastructure. In the ETF space, we are the premier provider of ETF data with classifications, analytics, ranking, and commentary. Um, and I know ETF.com has been a longtime FactSet ETF data customer. Um, and, you know, at first that happened because the FactSet's ETF team actually came out of ETF.com. And Sumit, I know you remember this very well. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. It, yeah, in the in 2015, FactSet purchased the ETF analytics business unit of ETF.com. Um, there were a lot of other transactions that happened, um, you know, later at FactSet and later at ETF.com. Um, and so, you know, that that's a, it's a long time ago now. But, um, you know, I, I know that the team at ETF.com is really quite familiar with uh, FactSet's ETF data. And for your users, you know, anytime you go onto a fund page on ETF.com, you'll see right in front of you what FactSet's ETF capabilities are. That's great. Elizabeth, I know you are a wizard when it comes to ETF data. You're following this stuff all the time. But I'm curious, do you have any insights on what kind of data that ETF investors are most interested in? Well, Sumit, I don't think there's such a thing as an ETF investor. I think we have a lot of different types of ETF investors. You know, we have some who really want to go deep and nerdy. We have some who just want a little bit of information. Um, and we have some who are trend followers and really all they want to know is about returns. I, my hope is that that last group will slow down and take advantage of the rich data that's available on ETF.com and on the FactSet workstation. But, you know, FactSet has a real range of ETF data clients. You know, everything from due diligence desks at giant wirehouses where you have just a handful of people in charge of making ETF buy list decisions for you know, thousands of advisors and their clients. Um, and those people are hugely detail oriented. Of course, they want to know about the expense ratio. Of course, they want to know about assets under management. Of course, they want to know about spreads. But they also want to know about things like flows and tracking difference and trading volumes and underlying liquidity metrics like um, underlying volume, market hours, overlap, uh, metrics that we have like fund closure risk, because no advisor wants to put a client in a product that you know kind of looks good on paper, but if it's not going to last, you know, you have a potential awkward conversation or um, a taxable event where the client happened, you know, wasn't planning on it. Um, so, you know, and of course the due diligence teams and frankly, everybody 
really want to know and understand about uh, the economic risks in the ETF. They want to understand what's in the portfolio, how is it the same as the broad market, how is it different, and what can you expect from that? Well, it's it's year end, so uh, obviously it's a time to a lot of people like to look back, look forward. What are some of the trends, Elizabeth, that you're seeing in the in the research that you're doing across the ETF space? Well, that's a great question. There's a couple that I can call out. One is um, elevated launch and closure activity. Um, another is uh, the continued trend to active. And the third is a, a slowdown in fee compression. So let's take them one by one. All right. So in terms of ETF launches, my count this morning for the year is 514, um, bringing us to a total of, I think, 3,339 ETFs trading in the US today. And if you don't like that number, well, come back tomorrow. It'll probably be different. Mm -hmm. um, what's also astonishing to me is that uh, we have the second highest level ever of closures uh, currently slated for 251 by my tally. Um, and, you know, percentage wise, it's over 8% of the previous year's uh, year end total count. We've got 8.16% of ETFs that were here on January 1 that will be gone by New Year's Eve. Um, and that's percentage wise, the second highest level we've seen ever. You know, 2008 got up to 8.5% and 2020 got up to 11.8%. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, both of those were years where the market was in a pretty severe correction. I mean, 2020 had down and up. Um, but, you know, 2023 has been a very strong year for U.S. equity markets, and it's been not terrible for fixed income markets, right? So the baseline closure rate is usually more like 5 6%. So I, I think it's really interesting that we've got this higher level. Yeah. Well, just to stay on that for a minute, do you, to what do you attribute that? I would say two things, but but really just one, which is the ETF business is tough, right? We see a lot of enthusiasm in asset managers continuing to think of new products and launch them, right? 514 launches to date is, mm -hmm. you know, symbolizes a lot of optimism. But the truth is that the business is highly competitive, and you still see the lion's share of flows going to well-established, broad-based vanilla funds that are core portfolio building blocks. Um, so, you know, it it's, it's hard to make a buck in the uh -huh. industry, and I think we're just seeing a growing realization of that. You know, we also just had a flurry of launches in 2020, 21, and 22, and 23, of course, as I mentioned, you know, uh, with the um, implementation of the ETF rule, it just became much easier to get product in the marketplace. And I think, you know, a lot of those uh, asset managers are discovering that maybe it's not so easy after all. So it's a little bit of a little bit of a reckoning. Elizabeth, you mentioned obviously 500 plus new launches this year. Are there any specific new ETF launches or even categories of new ETFs that have caught your eye this year? You know, for so many years running, 
we've seen the ETF marketplace be so incredibly competitive that in order to launch new product, if you're not going to be a me too kind of launch, then you have to be really, really niche And for the most part, when you see one niche ETF, I think it's really interesting and exciting. When you see a dozen, you think, wow, there's a lot of variety. And when you see thousands of them, you think, yeah, okay, enough already. <laughs> and so I think it's really, really hard to stand out. I do recall that you published uh, an article by my good friend, Alan Roth, really lauding the new bullet maturity tips ETFs. Um, those I do think solve a problem that investors are truly facing, right? The problem of ongoing market pricing of a bond fund, which, you know, in many cases you want price stability and you want it to have maturity features like a real bond. Uh, so I think those are pretty interesting. Um, and could actually consider using them. Yeah, yeah, those are interesting. I've actually been surprised that they haven't caught on more because, you know, a lot of people want the diversification that comes with the ETF wrapper, but they don't necessarily want the risk reward characteristics that you go with the bond fund. They'd rather have the risk reward characteristics that you get with individual bonds where you can hold them to maturity and get all your money back. Have you been surprised that they haven't, you know, taken off more than they have? You know, what I would say is that the benefits of diversification in fixed income are different than the benefits of, of diversification in equity. Like in equity, every time you add a number, na another name to your portfolio, you are gaining the benefit of not putting all your eggs in one basket. But in the bond world, that really only pertains when you have credit risk. So, you know, in the U.S., really in the corporate space and to a certain extent, uh, munis, right? But when you're talking about government bond funds, treasuries, agencies, mortgage backs, tips, you're not really getting any diversification because they're all from the same issuer, right? And for residents and citizens of the U.S., mm -hmm. If Uncle Sam starts defaulting, you have problems that are above and beyond that your government bond fund is underperforming, right? You have really serious problems. So a TIPS product doesn't necessarily, when you combine multiple TIPS, really what you're doing is you're just changing the duration and maturity characteristics. Uh, but with these funds, of course, that's a very limited range. And so it's really more akin to buying a single TIPS bond. What those funds are really doing is making it easier for TIPS investors to access the secondary market. Absolutely. Great point, Elizabeth. And, you know, I want to touch on uh, closures as well. You mentioned the second highest level ever for closures. You know, does anything stand out among the funds that are shutting down? Is it that cohort that launched in 2020, 21, um, you know, a lot of those meme ETFs and things like that, are those the ones shutting down or are we seeing older funds shut down as well? It's a real range. The funds that are closing have um, a 21 year span. So there's a handful that launched in 02 that are finally shutting down, you know, and then you have pretty much every year from 05 up to the present. But I think for me, the thing that really stands out is just what you said, that um, asset managers have less patience than they used to. Right? When FactSet first started publishing a fund closure risk metric, 
we built in a pretty generous grace period. And we said like, oh, well, you know, no asset manager is going to close a fund that they just opened six or 12 months ago. You know, they're going to give it some time. Um, and in fact, you know, in those days, we would see asset managers giving new products three, four, five, seven years. You know, now that number is more like 12 to 24 months. Elizabeth, one other thing you mentioned was uh, fees. I, I think you said that the, the fee compression is slowing. That That is kind of interesting. I, I mean, because the fee compression trend has been going on for a number of years. Are you saying that ETFs are are not cutting their fees anymore or they're, they're starting to launch uh, funds with higher fees or what do you, what are you seeing there? So I'm really seeing a couple of contradictory trends, right? There's still an extraordinary investor preference for the biggest, broadest, cheapest funds out there. You know, as I mentioned, the real core portfolio investments that you're going to just buy and hold for a long time. You know, if you if you just sort by flows, still at the top of the chart are S&P 500 funds, Vanguard total stock, total bond, uh, ag. Mm -hmm. But also right there in the top of the chart, you have this contradictory trend, you know, in position number eight, as of yesterday, was JEPI, right? JP Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF that carries a price tag of 35 basis points. So there's a cohort of customers who, for whatever reason, are willing to pay up for an ETF strategy, provided that you know it it meets their criteria. I can't begin to tell you what their criteria are, right? Everybody has a different process. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's simply that, well, if I have this product in a mutual fund, it would be 75 basis points. So I think 35 is a steal, right? And they haven't done a yeah. broad comparison in the ETF world, they might not know that 35 is kind of outrageous these days. So that's one. But the other thing, I think you hit the nail on the head, like we are seeing for the first time, significant numbers of fee hikes. Um, I think I counted over 400 so far in calendar 2023. Um, and that's extraordinary. Some of them, I think, have to do with where firms believe they have market power. Others, I think, may be more of a last gasp, you know, wow, my ETF isn't profitable at the expense ratio that I started at. I guess, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe I'll squeeze more out of the investors that I have rather than focus on attracting new investors. You know, it's funny, we we get a lot of press releases when uh, when issuers cut their fees, but they don't send out press releases when they raise their fees. Funny that. What are your thoughts about the the migration into the ETF space by by mutual fund companies? And, you know, you know, all the big names, but they're, you know, we've got legacy mutual fund companies over the past several years that were, you thought they were never going to get into the ETF space. I'm thinking of like T. Rowe Price, uh, Dimensional. I think they're the fastest growing ETF issuer this year. Dimensional, I think, is the name to beat in the active space, right? right? Dimensional is to active what Vanguard has been to passive. They're the low cost leader. They're operating mm -hmm. at scale. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think in the world of active managers, some will look at Dimensional and say they're really just kind of closet index or quants rather than, you know, stock pickers. And uh, 
you know, Dimensional probably wouldn't agree with the tone of that, but would probably mm -hmm. talk very strongly about their process and their, you know, legacy coming out of the Fama French model and the Booth School. Um, but there's no question that Dimensional has been wildly successful in attracting assets to their ETFs. And they, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you talk to them, they say that they they launch products that their clients are clamoring for. In general, though, I think you're more sort of classic, you know, fundamental bottoms up or macro top down mutual fund manager. Uh, the mutual fund is a structure that served them really well, and but the world changed. And they only have been able to ignore the changing world for so long as their mutual fund business continues to be under pressure, right? You know, we've seen just massive migration out of mutual funds, specifically um, equity mutual funds, but fixed income starting to see it too, to a certain extent, and into ETFs, you know, largely passives. But, you know, now that the active floodgates have been open, maybe mm -hmm. it's too little too late. But I think for a lot of asset managers, it's the Hail Mary pass and their choices are to throw or not. Yeah, I I, I don't know. It, it seems a little early to call it a Hail Mary pass because it, it seems like there's just so I mean, look at Dimensional is the perfect example of making the transition into the ETF space and being hugely successful. I mean, granted, they're one of the most popular uh, names among financial advisors, uh, I'm sure that they were, when they talk about their, doing what their customers were looking for, uh, that would probably hit the nail on the head. They, um, financial advisors love ETFs and they love dimensional. So it's a, it's a perfect storm. W what about the transition away from mutual funds and toward ETFs? I mean, the, the, it's been happening for years. It seems like the pace is just picking up, or maybe it's just that mutual funds are seeming kind of starting to look like your father's Oldsmobile. Frankly, I'm surprised that it's taken as long as it has. I think the writing's been on the wall for a really long time in terms of the trend and investor preference. It's just so clear that the ETF is a more efficient vehicle in terms of operations and also in terms of control for uh, tax liability realization for mm -hmm. the end investor. And you know, with some of the regulatory innovations that we've had between the ETF rule and the successful uh, transitions from conversions from um, actively managed mutual fund to actively managed ETF, like nobody has to go sell anything and buy anything else. All of the infrastructure is in place. So any asset manager that had been waiting to see if this ETF trend went away or to see if it was easier to launch or to see if they could, you know, use portfolio shielding methodologies for their secret sauce or to see if they could just move their customers over wholesale. Like all of those pieces are in place. You know, I would mention that the portfolio, the, you know, the ants, the not an active non-transparent has always been something that's more interesting to asset managers than it is to investors. It's really not caught on the way that people think it will. And we're starting to see a migration away from that structure. The other thing, I guess, is that when you have constantly rising markets, you can have good profitability in an old structure because uh, AUM continues to grow because the markets are creating a tailwind for you. But you know, in 2022, when we got such choppy markets and all of a sudden AUM growth, you know, halted and then reversed. I think the profitability picture started to look very different. And that means that the impetus for change gets stronger. 
Elizabeth, shifting gears a little bit, you touched on Jeffy a couple of minutes ago. Obviously, that's the poster child for what's been an extraordinarily huge boom in covered call ETFs that we've seen this year, billions and billions of dollars of inflows into those. Have you been surprised by that? And do you think this uh, large demand for covered call ETFs has staying power? I have been a little surprised by it because I expected financial advisors to do a longer and more careful cost-benefit analysis. Selling calls is only profitable long-term if you can sell the calls at a higher volatility than the market actually realizes. When you put that on top of um, the very high fees that these products are charging and the non-favorable tax treatment that you have for options income, it's really hard to make the case that these are long-term products that should replace a core equity holding. I think you know advisors were attracted to them because of the downside protection that they provided, especially in 2022. Um, but in a boom year like this, you know these products are disappointing. You're overpaying for underperformance. So who knows how long investors will tolerate that. Yeah, I'd love to see an analysis of where the purchase of of those covered call strategies are coming from. I sense that a lot of that is wirehouse brokers. I know that there was a just a strong, strong push over the past year or more. People, you know, everybody going to their clients saying covered call is the way to go. Look at this. It, you know, it's it's got all these guardrails and everything. And I don't know. I think people might start asking themselves if they need that much insurance for that price. Um, good point, Elizabeth. The final thing we want to ask you here is um, <clears throat> it's a little bit of a fun question, but uh, what are some of the interesting tickers that you've seen in your research over the years? I mean, I, I think of things like I think there was one out there a while ago called Bite, B-I-T-E, that was something obviously to do with the restaurant industry. There's, I, th I don't even know if these are still around. I just know the tickers. YOLO, Y-O-L-O, -O for, I think that was a cannabis <laughs> investing strategy. Yes, uh, yes, it's but, true. Okay. But, uh, but I don't know. I mean, any, I mean, tickers are, tickers are kind of the, one of the fun things that you can do in the ETF space that, well, you can't do so much in the mutual fund space because I think they all have to end with an X. But what about <laughs> what are some of the things that you you've recognized and remembered? Ticker aesthetics are very much a personal preference. Uh, so I'm going to answer in a very personal manner and not represent fact set in any way. Okay. Uh, you'll, you'll learn more about me, I think, than you will about ETF tickers with this answer. But I want to give a shout out to my friend Steve Schoenfeld, who launched an Israel bond ETF today with the ticker Chai. Um, it's spelled C-H-A-I, and there might be some users who think that that's a nice steamy cup of Indian tea. Oh, so uh -huh. yummy. But no, um, it's the Hebrew word for life. And uh, I think it's an extraordinarily well-timed uh, ticker for investors who want to bet on the longevity of the Jewish people. Wow, that is that is great stuff. Great, uh, great perspective there. Wasn't there one, Elizabeth, a while ago, um, Nash, was a Nashville ETF, something like that? There's been so many great ones over the years. Um, oh, Sumit, you're showing our age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Elizabeth. You're just a wealth of knowledge. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us.
Thank you so much for inviting me. What a wonderful talk this has been. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fighters episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.